Today's Words and Nerds podcast is sponsored by The Accomplice by Steve Kavanagh. If you were married to a serial killer, would you know? Steve Kavanagh's follow-up to the best-selling 13, 50-50 and The Devil's Advocate is his twistiest yet. The Sandman serial killings have been solved. Daniel Miller murdered 14 people before he vanished. His wife Carrie now faces trial as his accomplice. The FBI, the district attorney, the media and everyone in America believe she knew and helped cover up her husband's crimes. The only thing between a life in jail or free Freedom is Eddie Flynn and his team. Steve Kavanagh is the master of the twist and The Accomplice will keep you guessing right to the last page. The Accomplice is released in Australia on the 26th of July. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh, feeling sick. Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another Words and Nerds podcast episode where we bring you literary goodness straight to your ears wherever you are. Today I'm up very early. I'd only get up this early for one person. It's Adrian McKinty. His debut crime novel, Dead Eye Well May Be, was shortlisted for the 2004 Dagger Award and was optioned by Universal Pictures. His books have won the Edgar Award, the Ned Kelly Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, and have been translated in over 20 languages. Adrian is a reviewer and critic for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Irish Times and The Guardian, and today we're going to talk about the compelling book, The Island, which I know I couldn't put down. Welcome, Adrian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Beaming in all the way from New York City to Sydney. How is it over there in New York City? It's pretty early in Sydney. You haven't even checked the weather. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, if you pull back your curtains, you might be better than what we've got. Uh, We're sort of looking at a very low ceiling, maybe about a thousand feet, 300 meters, gray sky, quite muggy. I can sort of feel it through the windows. So not really the most exciting day out there, to be perfectly Mm. honest with you. I don't know. I know people hate muggy. I almost prefer muggy than having the heater on under your desk all day. I'm not sure. I think it's whenever you're uncomfortable, you just prefer something else, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the grass is always grimmer phenomenon. But, um, you know, it's been such a, we, we've, this winter we've had rain and snow and more cold rain and more wow. snow. And so I'm just waiting for the mugginess to break, yeah, for the kind of grey skies to go away. Yeah. Two weeks of blue skies would do me the world of good, I think. It does. It lifts your mood as well. It's, it's proven that it, it lifts your mood, those blue skies. I was going to say, do you know the, do you know the, um, the travel writer Paul Theroux? And he wrote The Great Railway Bazaar mm-hmm. and um, he wrote all these fantastic travel books from the 70s and 80s. He's also a novelist. He had this novel, St. Jack, that was a big hit in the 70s and stuff. And he deliberately, this is true, he lived in um, somewhere in the U.S. where they got a lot of sunshine, and he deliberately moved to the U.S. to improve uh, to London to improve his writing wow. because 
he said where he lived, I can't quite remember where he lived in the US, but he said when it was sunny outside, he always wanted to get out yeah. and go to the park and ride his bike and, you know, do all these things. But in London, you know, where it was 250 days of rain, he thought, <laughs> oh my God, there's, there's nothing out there for me. I might as well be at my typewriter working. Um, so that was an interesting phenomenon. I love he that. Somewhere where the weather was bad. It's um, true though. I see all these writers retreats in Byron Bay and I'm like, you know, how do you stay in that place when it's so beautiful? So there we go. Writers Byron retreat. Bay be, Byron Bay would be a dreadful writers retreat. Right. I mean, I wouldn't do a thing there. I'd, I'd say hello to them in the morning over our muesli or whatever we're eating there. Probably some out. highfalutin malarkey. And I said, I'll see you guys later. And, and then I'd be going back. to the beach um, surfing. You, you come know. back very tanned. Yeah, I just go, oh, I got lots of work done. What about you guys? Just, it's all ah. about the thinking, right? Yes. Before oh, yeah. we get oh, into I the... Plotted, that's right. I plotted a whole chapter. <laughs> Before we get into the elevator pitch, though, I do want to ask you, your process of writing while we're here, is there a lot of thinking involved in that or is that just... Um, well, get... for this one, uh, well, this was an interesting one. I had pretty uh, severe uh, writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um, for this one, I'd written the I'd written the chain, and I, I remember very clearly. I did my last event for the chain, which is the the Crime Festival in Oslo in March of 2020, and then literally the 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 I got a phone call from my wife Lee, and she said, "Adrian, you got to come back. They're closing the New York City public schools. They're closing the airports." This is this thing called COVID-19. You, you've got to get back. So when I got back, literally the next day, they closed the New York public schools. Wow. And they started closing the airports and stuff like that. So um, we were in lockdown and, um, and I found it quite um, uh, depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't really get out. Everywhere was closed. People were getting food deliveries. I was sort of home with my wife's a teacher. So she was having to teach from Zoom school and, the kids were on Zoom school as well, and it, it never really worked properly. That Zoom stuff, you know, and the and the, to compensate, the kids, were, the teachers were giving my kids tons of homework, so they had like homework until like ten o'clock, eleven oh. o'clock at night, and I was shattered wow. dealing with all this malarkey, mm. and um, and you know, I found it very very hard to write anything. And you know, every couple of months, my editor would call me up and says, you know, Adrian, how's the new book coming along? And I'd be going, it's going great. <laughs> it's going fantastic. I have all these fantastic ideas. I'm just narrowing them down. And, and then my agent would call and and and, uh, and he would go, how's the new book coming on? And you can lie to your editor, but you should never, ever lie to your agent. Uh, <laughs> Good tip. Mate, mate, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. I'm shattered. I'm depressed. Wow. I got absolutely nothing. So there was about seven or eight months of, of, of serious writer's block. Mm. Uh, um, before probably most of 2020 and and into 2021. Um, wow, I did. I have uh, heard from so many creatives though that COVID actually did. Even though you, we were home, it was a perfect yeah. time to be creative. No one could be creative. Like it really impacted yeah. people's creativity. I couldn't. I, I just. I couldn't. I just felt so exhausted and mm. depressed. Yeah. And um, just there was there was absolutely nothing. And, yeah. and you would try stuff, and then you'd read it the next day, and you go, ugh. Oh. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't working. It's interesting, isn't it? The impact that it had on all of us. Yeah. And Zoom school was horrible. I remember when I was in charge of homeschooling, I was like, let's watch Harry Potter because, yeah. you know, you'll catch up. It'll be fine. Read a book. You'll be fine. And look, they're fine. It was so crap. It was so crap. And also, I mean, how can you do like stuff like chemistry? 
Yeah, see, my kids were little. They weren't doing chemistry. (laughs) Yeah, well, my kids were doing that, and it just, it wasn't working. Just the the whole thing really was, it was a fiasco. I agree, absolutely. um, So it wasn't terribly uh, creative during that period. Mm, Yeah, hear that a lot. And let's crack into the island. Hit us with an elevator pitch. Well, um, I suppose I could, an elevator pitch, I suppose I could tell you, how yeah i know what i'll do i'll tell you how i got working on it Mm. and that sort of blends into the book itself this is a real life experience right yes exactly so i mean so my agent uh, during this long period of me doing nothing my agent would stop calling up to make me write a book he would start calling me up as a as more of a therapist and we just talk about movies and um we just talk about movies and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was, I'm obsessed by seventies movies. Um, I just, uh, I grew up in the eighties. Um, so I remember in the video store, there'd be all these films from the seventies, you know, especially all those ones that were in the UK and Ireland that were called video nasties. And so they never made it into the cinema because they um, couldn't that. get a certificate. They were too depraved to be given a certificate. So you know, films like Texas Chainsaw and Last House on the Left and I Spit in Your Grave and all, uh, The Hills of Eyes, all these nasty, horrible 70s. But I was obsessed by those. And it was always the first films we wanted to see when we were going to the, yeah. when we go to the store. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I, so we would always talk about those. And I I'd also loved Deliverance. I mean, I remember reading the book, the James Dickey novel, loving it, and then seeing the, the film. And they're both fantastic in, in different ways. And, uh, you know, I was talking to my agent one time and I said to him, you know, funny enough, Shane, I kind of had my own deliverance moment uh, a couple of years ago in, uh, you know, outside Melbourne. He goes, oh, what was that? And I goes, well, I was always taking the kids for these long drives and, uh, you know, we'd always go like about an hour outside Melbourne. You're in Mad Max country, which is fantastic. <laughs> if you go about another six and about another six hours north, you're in. You know, Mad Max 2, the road warrior uh, territory. Long drive, but, you know, uh, maybe the kids will thank me one day um, <laughs> for broadening their cultural horizons. I, they haven't thanked me yet, but uh, maybe that day will come. So one time we were sort of driving along the coast of Victoria and I saw this island. You know, there's the famous Phillips Island that everybody goes to um, where the penguins. Um, and I didn't want to do that because obviously everybody goes to do that. And... Um, but there was this other island along the coast of Victoria um, that no one goes to that I was really interested in. And um, I said, let's go here. And um, so we took the ferry over and um, it was quite an interesting experience on the ferry because the guy's driving the ferry with his foot um, drinking a can of beer. And meanwhile, <laughs> you do. telling us that the ferry has a tendency to capsize and these are shark infested waters. So you're going, oh, okay. You know, if that were me, I'd be using both hands um, on that. Um, but okay. You do. And you. then when we landed, <laughs> yes. Then we landed. It was, it was also quite odd because um, the first thing we see is a couple of guys with um, broken over shotguns over their shoulders, uh, double barrel shotguns, which I'd never seen before anywhere in Australia. I mean, occasionally you'll see cops with um, sidearms, you know, with yeah. uh, revolvers, but I've never seen long guns anywhere ever in Oz because the gun laws, mm. you know, and uh, so that was immediately got my attention. I thought, what's what's going on here? And then we'd hear shooting all over this little island. Apparently they were um, extirpating the local rabbit population, but we sort of didn't know that at the time. We just saw these guys with guns and heard all the shooting. It was, it was weird. And, and then when we got to this farm, sort of in the middle of the island, 
uh, we learned that the, all these people were one large extended family. And when we got to the farm, they knew all about us um, because the guy in the ferry had walkie talkied ahead wow. and said, oh, yeah, there's a family coming from Amber. And they knew who we were and where we were coming from, all of us. And then uh, so that was odd. Mm. And then one of them, one of the guys there um, kind of made it. I didn't hear this, but my wife did sort of made an inappropriate remark about one of my daughters. And so my wife said, Adrian, can we just leave? And um, and so I said, yeah, because there's kind of nothing to see anyway, because there's, you know, it was all this large, you know, that, you know, the spin effects, that large, tall, that grass. Yeah, yeah. So you can't really see over that anyway. Um, so I said, all right, let, let's just go. I was defeated because we hadn't really seen anything. And the guy in the ferry had said an odd thing to us. He said, look, I, I do my last run at three o'clock. Um, so make sure you're back by three or you're spending the night here. And uh, when I looked at my watch, it was half two. And I thought, oh, bloody hell. So I'm bombing it down the road in our, in our car, really, because I don't want to have to spend the night. God, and it's, no. it's the day before Valentine's Day. So it's really, really hot. It's, you know, 40 degrees Celsius, something like that. It's, it's stonking heat. And so I'm bombing down this road really for too fast. I admit it. But and then suddenly out of the grass, um, this lady on a bicycle um, comes out. And she's got a, you know, when you're, when you're driving, you see things really clearly, your adrenaline's going. Mm. And I can see on her back of her jean shorts, she's got a, um, a hearing aid. And, um, and so I honk the horn and I slam on the brakes and the hearing aid mustn't be working or it's not plugged in or the battery's dead or whatever, because she doesn't hear me at all. And she just continues on down the road and I'm slamming on the brakes and we stop about seven or eight meters behind her. Wow. And she continues right down the road completely obliviously. And I'm just sitting at the behind the steering wheel trembling. Mm. I really freaked out by the whole thing. And to break the tension, I said to my wife, you know, if we'd hit her, we wouldn't have got off this island alive. And perfectly seriously, my wife says to me, I don't think we would have. Wow. And, oh, and so wow. a couple of years later, during this lockdown period, when I've got writer's block, bad writer's block, I tell this story to my agent and he says to me, McKinty, you idiot, <laughs> you did hit her. That's the next book. And, and I thought about it. I thought, oh, wow. Yes. Yes. American family. They're in Oz. They're driving around. They, they're, they go to a place they shouldn't have gone, like all bloody Americans. <laughs> and, and then they, they cause an accident. It's their fault. And then what happens next? Mm. And the more I thought about it, I thought about it for a couple of days and I thought, yep, this is the, this is the one. And then, um, and it's funny because I still had the same experience. The kids were still in Zoom school. And, but by the time everybody got quiet in the house around 11 o'clock, then I just would set the work and I'd work from about 11 to about two um, every night. And, uh, and I was thinking about this afterwards. You can always tell, books that are written after midnight they have that I certain agree. yes tone darkness. or vibe yeah. or darkness yeah. or splinter there's mm. something about them and this is definitely a book that was written after midnight I from love midnight that. to but I love that time of day. Like I, I'm a bit of an insomniac so I don't sleep a lot but I love that yeah. time when everyone's asleep you look out the blinds there's no one out there. It's dark. It's yeah. quiet. I, and I feel like that's a really good time to be creative or do something like that. I, I do too. I, you know, I, I used to be, I used to be a morning and afternoon writer. Uh, I used to like to go to a cafe 
and get a uh, scone and a big cup of coffee and sit down in the cafe and there's tons of people around and you can listen to music and and and, and write with all the you know and now i've been converted completely mm. now i i don't do that at all now i wait until the house is quiet the street is quiet the world is empty yes. And it's just you yeah. and the, the words. I love and, that. It's pretty good I, for I crime that. too, I reckon. It puts you in a different yeah, mindset, yeah. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. What um, did I say? Nothing good happens after 3 a.m.? <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, isn't that how the death are in hospitals? Yes. That's when patients have been struggling their best. At yeah. 3, they all give up the ghost. Yeah, it's um, apparently the most vulnerable. Your body's the most vulnerable at 3 a.m. because your heart rate slows and all those things. I yeah. find that fascinating. It is fascinating, mm. and uh, and, I, and I, it's funny because um, I live in a um, an apartment building in New York, and I'm opposite all these other apartment buildings. And it's funny if you're sitting working at your desk, you can see all the lights go off one by one. Oh, so yeah. eleven thirty, there's still a lot of lights. Midnight, there's a few. Twelve thirty one, but by two or two thirty, it's just you. You're the that. only one left. Yeah, and just got still working here. Yeah. And it's uh, no, a cool time. I agree. Yeah, Insomniacs unite. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Now, this is why setting was just so important in your book, and it was another character to itself, you know, and it, it was so intense. But I wanted to ask, is that you or me? That's you. Usually it's New York, right? Yeah, I don't know. That's you. That's you, mate. That's the cop. So what I wanted to ask you, when you're on an island and, you know, obviously it's advantageous because you're creating tension and it's really intense, but there must be challenges to having a setting in one island and one spot too, moving the story forward. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they couldn't run into, I mean, so, when you're writing in a thriller, you can always run into somebody and then have a conversation and you can yeah. unpack the events um, for them or they can help you or whatever. But if you're on this very, very small space with very limited characters, you can't do that at all. Mm. And you have to find other creative ways to keep the story going and and, and to unpack it all. So yeah, that that actually was a, a quite a fun challenge. And, you know, but it wasn't a novel where I really got stuck though. Um, mm. um, I, it's, it was for, after I set up the initial parameters of the book, everything else that terrible things happened, really, really mm. terrible things. <laughs> but everything sure. hopefully is within the logic of that universe. Yep. And you can sort of, the, hopefully, the reader is going, oh, yeah, once you've set up these initial parameters and this logic, then of course that would happen, then that would happen, and then that would happen. And if they did that, then that would happen. So it wasn't terribly often that I got stuck. Um, and if I did get stuck, I just came up with the old mantra of thriller writers. Um, well, what's the worst thing that could happen now? You know, what's, I love that. what's the absolute worst thing? And then you just apologize to the characters. Just say, I'm sorry, guys. Do that. But, <laughs> but this is what's going to happen. And then, uh, yes, and then off you go. Does that sometimes get you written into a corner when you do the worst thing? You're like, hmm, how do I get these people out of this? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not really a seat of the pants guy, um, to be honest. I'm more of a planner. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I, I see the pants writing so, really freaks me out um, mm. quite a bit. And I know that's how Lee Child writes all of his books, um, totally just yeah, makes it up as he goes along. It's remarkable, isn't um, it? And I remember reading yeah, something it, it, about him and he says, well, if I write something in the beginning that doesn't fit with the end, I just keep going because that's real life. I'm like, that is 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating way of writing. Yeah, you know, I, I, no, I've interviewed him a couple of times and um, he denies, I mean, I've said to him, I've challenged him to his face and I said, yeah, I've read a lot of interviews where you say that, but the truth is you fix it all in the second draft. Uh, and he said, no, I do not. And he wow. said, I absolutely don't. Um, the second draft is just to correct grammar and um, I never go back and change stuff. And if that's true, and I, and I believe it is true, because I, I looked him in his steely gray eyes <laughs> and, um, and he convinced me. Um, that's incredible. It's that's fascinating, incredible. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, the, my second drafts are where the book really comes together, mm. um, you know, because you've, you've, you've done things and you go, oh, couldn't we have this? I mean, there's a there's a there's a little girl who appears, um, Neve. Um, mm. She's a terrible, very very small character, and I had her appear once in the book, and then in the second draft, I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if she was kind of like a totemic character, yeah. and she appears now three times at three major changes. And you remember her because of that, you know, even though she's a minor yes. character, you remember her and you can picture her. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I thought that would be really, really, and that was the second draft creation where I thought, oh God, wouldn't it be fun if she, mm. if we get her a couple more times at each time, it's kind of a little, it's quite significant um, mm. what she says or what she does uh, as the book goes along. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I'd be lost without a second draft but mm. um not lee child interesting um, his brain it? doesn't work that way well i yeah. love thrillers that explore moral dilemmas i mean a lot of thrillers do that now but i find it really interesting putting the ordinary person in these extraordinary situations and going well how would you act and i know it's very easy to sit in your lounge room while you're reading and go well i wouldn't do that but we don't know do we yeah. until we're faced with the horror and protecting our family and the people that we love. So I, I love the idea of moral dilemmas that really sort of make you think, well, hang on, if my kids, I thought my kids were in danger and I needed to get off this island, what would I do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, in the chain, um, the book before this, yeah. I have the lead character, terrible things. I mean, absolutely dreadful things. Um, but hopefully uh, you give the reader sufficient empathy so that they, if they wouldn't do them, them themselves, and a lot of people wouldn't, um, but at least they understand where she was coming from and the things that she did. And in this one, I have them make decisions, which I don't actually think are the right decisions or certainly morally and ethically questionable. Um, the decisions that they make, but hopefully you understand where they're coming from. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe you would make the same decision yourself, or maybe you wouldn't, mm. but hopefully- But you don't you know. know. You don't know. And no, you, you know what? Know. It's a whole different ball game when it's just you before you have kids and then you have kids and your brain just yeah. thinks so differently. Like, no, no, I would do whatever it takes to protect these children and get them off this island or wherever. Like it's a different mindset, don't you think, when you're in your 20s and it's just you? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you, you can't imagine in your twenties. You, you, I was a pretty mellow guy in my twenties. It's fairly happy-go-lucky chap. Uh, had no life plan or <laughs> as you shouldn't um, in your twenties <laughs> or prospects. To be perfectly honest, um, but in my thirties, you know, um, when whenever I had kids, I you know the kids would say something. To, you know. Um, you know, X bullied me in school today. And you'd have fantasies of going to X's parents' house mm, and beating up X's dad <laughs> and saying, you know, if your kid touches me again, I'll be over here every night. 
to kick the shite out of you. Right. And you never do that in your 20s. Are you kidding me? But if anybody messes with your kids and, um, you know, it's a it's a different universe. It's interesting, you know? isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's a different mindset. Yeah. And you just, you, you can't picture that. So when, you know, you are reading The Chain or you are reading The Island, you, you just get it because you're like, well, I don't know what I do. You know, and that island yeah, exactly. was terrifying, you know, and you made it yeah. so that this family that were a law unto themselves and they were carrying their guns and they were just like, this is how it is. There's no ferry. There's sharks. Like they're trying to instill fear in you. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? You've got to get off. You have to get off that island and then deal with whatever you need to deal with once you're over there. And it was very important for me. Uh, I thought, okay, I've stopped it was, it was, I thought I've experienced this in real life, this mm. real place, which I, I mean, I'm sure the, actually, I should say, I'm sure the real people that live on this real version of this, I'm sure they're lovely. They're fine. Um, they're lovely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they're lovely people. And I got them on a bad day. Someone made an unfortunate remark. It's water under the bridge. I'm sure. They're, <laughs> I'm sure they're not going back, lovely. but water under the yes, bridge. <laughs> no. Yes. I, I'm sure some but I thought to myself, I have to communicate the way I felt yes. um, on that place in that time to the reader mm. and, you know, establish the mood and the atmosphere and the stakes and show them that you there isn't an easy way off. And mm. the, this is, a, uh, you know, the stakes are incredibly high. And so that was a, a, a journey that you had to go on or you, you had to think of a, as a writer. And I was thinking, in a way, this is um, this is quite difficult for me because the me my memory of that place is so intense and mm. so vivid. Um, I thought, you know, I, I've got to try and get this in words on the page mm. somehow. And the way I thought to do it was reminding the reader about the heat, reminding the reader about the water, um, reminding, Shocks. yes, just reminding them about the isolation and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that was the, the way I, I, I had to do it. And you did it brilliantly because I remember saying, do not go to that island. Bad things are going to happen on this island. And then, you yes. know, when when there was the decision of, you know, what do we do with the moral dilemma, I was exactly with you. No, just get off the island, deal with it later. But of course, then you don't yeah. have a crime novel, right? You don't have a thriller. You know, yeah, it was it was very interesting because I was, you know, I, I remember writing that the scene where um, they're, they're, they almost get away with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they almost get off. And I was really rooting for them. And I was thinking, but you can't have a book that ends on page 56. <laughs> you know, that's a novella and not a good novella. It is, it is. Um, and it's kind of loses that. its thrill, I guess. You know, people get off the yes. island and they're fine and they go have a cappuccino. I'm not sure the thrill's yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, or maybe that would be a literary fiction novel where something yes. bad happens, they get off the island, and then for the next 300 pages they, they reflect. talk about it. They reflect yes. upon yeah. their experiences and how it changed them as a person. Yeah. Uh, Again, you know, I probably... I wouldn't get past page 56. Yes. Um, maybe that would have got me under the Booker long list, uh, but that's not my kind of thing. It's not your jam. Uh, so instead of having them have deep discussions with their therapist for 300 pages, <laughs> they have to just run. Mm. They just have to run. Yeah. And, and I like how, you know, that ordinary person has to be resourceful and think on their feet and you know, experience things that they've never done before. I love that because that's all of us. You know, yeah. it's all of us. If we get put in these extraordinary situations, well, what are we going to do and how are we going to get out of it? Now, thrillers are just so, you know, they resonate with people so much. I mean, crime and thriller, you know, that whole massive genre has, yeah. has resonated with audiences for, you know, for ever since it existed. But I want to ask you, why do you think crime fiction and thrillers resonate with so many readers? 
I you know I've been thinking a lot about that recently because I remember in the um, 80s when I was growing up, crime fiction thrillers were a despised genre. Um, people were embarrassed to be caught reading them on, on, mm. the, on the train and people didn't think, but now they've become almost respectable. And mm. I, I, I honestly, I don't know why that is. Um, I think maybe they've become better. Yeah. Um, like you've get it, you're just getting better writers writing, you know, stories, you know, with morality and three-dimensional characters uh, or, or maybe it's just that literary fiction has gotten more boring. I mean, I, 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 I don't know, <laughs> or, um, but certainly, yeah, you're absolutely true. The, the genre has really exploded in the mm. last, maybe it was Dragon Tattoo changed everything. Like, you know, after Girl with Dragon Tattoo, you see a lot more yeah. people reading thrillers yeah. around that was like 2006 or 2007 yeah, a long time, yeah. but you're right um in the last decade or so it, it it's it's the, the genre has really taken off mm, it has I I think, yeah I, i've been thinking about it a lot too i for me i think it just reflects like it's got everything for me crime and thrillers have everything they've got great characters it's no longer the dead girl in the bathroom thank goodness yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got these amazing female characters ordinary people and then I think it reflects society's fears as well. So I think it just, for me, it just has everything. It has those relationships, has the character, always has strong setting. And then it reflects, I think, the contextual fears that you're living with, yeah, I yeah. think. Paul yeah. McDermott says this interesting thing. She says, you know, it's about the restoration of order um, mm -hmm. because the world is a chaotic place and a scary, dangerous place. And you can take the reader into a scary, chaotic universe and then, I mean, even if it doesn't end well, you know that there is a kind of restoration of order yeah. uh, in a especially with the detective, that kind of book. The detective at least is looking into it. Yeah. And even if they don't find who it is, it, that, that, there's that sort of comforting level. And I guess in a thriller too, you have characters to empathize with and especially characters who are maybe at the beginning, I, I love doing this trope, characters who are weak and vulnerable and ignored and condescended to and then as the book goes on they find that um they're strong they're resilient they've got this inner power this inner strength and uh, no one's condescending to them by the end of the book mm. um in fact the reverse um so I, I i love characters who go on that journey and and, and that can be really really fun yeah, I agree. And I just think it's true of all of us. You know, we don't know what we're capable of until we have to do it. You know, and we've all been there, whether it was through COVID or personal things that happened to us or just having children, you know, you you yeah. dig up that resilience. Like, oh, I didn't know I had that in me, but here it is. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I also, I, I really like, I mean, it's hard for me. I mean, speaking about um, uh, Lee Child, I mean, when you go into a Jack Reacher novel, you've got this guy who's six foot eight and he's 250 pounds, like 125 kilos, and he's military and trained and stuff like that. And he's kind of invulnerable mm. and there's not much space for him to grow um, throughout this space. And I'm not knocking Lee Child. I love I love Lee and I love I love the Reacher books. But for me, it's it's also extremely interesting to take someone who is you know, the wind could blow them over and mm. they're frail and weak. And um, especially in the in in um, in the chain, I had a character who was just recovering from cancer and, you know, could barely lift up her car keys. And in this, um, again, you've got a character who, you know, they mock her for not graduating high school. Mm. And, you know, they say she's not bright. They say mm. she's not 
um, you know, strong or whatever. And she doesn't fit into the family unit. You know, she's she just certainly just, doesn't fit in yeah. at all. And it turns out that she's the right person mm. in the right time. And they really couldn't have asked for better mm. um, she's got this incredible inner strength and resilience. And I, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I do too. I do too. Now I see that you're wearing a Joy Division t-shirt. Love Joy Division. Yeah. Do you have a soundtrack when you're writing? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, when I was writing the book, I had to, uh, the, the, I, I made the character in the, in, um, in the island a, a singer or she wanted to yeah. be a singer. And I had this huge sound. I had to cut about two thirds of the songs uh, because my <laughs> editor said, you know, this is too much. Um, you know, you, you've got to cut. But I, I kept in about a dozen of my favorites. There is actually, um, no, maybe I cut it. I, there's either a New Order song in it or a Joy Division song. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. There's a few Beatles songs in there. And um, and there's a few more contemporary stuff, you know, as, uh, as well. And, you know, it's funny, the, the conversations, I had so many conversations about music with my editor. And then she said, you know, would a 23-year-old really know the lyrics to a song from the White Album? And I go, well, my daughter's 15 and her favorite album is Sgt. Pepper. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, uh, millennials would surprise you. Yeah. It uh, depends on the family you grow up in. You know, my dad's yeah. a music so I was I'd, I'd heard all Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and all yeah. those things that probably most teenage girls wouldn't have heard in the 80s <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so you know it it, it it really depends and I'm saying my character my world yeah. does know all, all the songs <laughs> the it's pretty impressive uh, by the way <laughs> yeah. yeah and some of the songs are not good I, mean, I don't want to upset any Beatles fans out there but that's a that's a very long album. Very long album. Some of those may have, uh, you know. Should have been the B-side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, the question I ask all my guests before I let them go is, why do you write? Um, well, I, I think, I know I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, someone who was um, tr trying to get into writing for the first time. And I was thinking of one of the really bad reasons to be a writer is to try and make money. Um, there's so much better ways to make money. Um, you know, less soul destroying going ways. The, yeah, going to the stock market or <laughs> get a job in business or there really is better ways to make money. This is not a good way to make money. The reason you should become a writer is because you have a burning desire to tell stories. Yeah. That's the only real reason. And then it doesn't matter because then if your book fails epically or is a success epically, it, it makes no difference whatsoever because if you've told the story you wanted to tell, that's all that matters. Mm. And when the book comes out and it's the story you wanted and that's your reward and whether the public like it or not, if the public like it, that's a huge bonus. And if they don't like it, it doesn't matter at all uh, because you had this demon inside you telling you to tell this story and thank God you got the story out and thank God you find a publisher who was willing to publish it. And that's your triumph. That's your success. Mm, I love that. And there are so many little hurdles. You know, you, you finally get your agent or you finally get your publishing deal. And that's just the beginning of the whole journey. You know, I think people think that once you get your publishing deal, you're set. You know, you're set and you're done. But there's so many things that you actually have to then sell it, talk to people about yeah. it, think about their ideas, get another publishing deal. So, yeah, yeah. it's a very complex space, I think, that is kind of all these. Absolutely. And then, you know, and then deal with, in my case, almost a year of writer's block or mm. nine, ten months of writer's yeah. block. Was that where, terrifying for um, you? 
Um, it, it, it was quite scary because I, I had signed a two book deal. Um, and you know, so you signed a contract. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the editor will call you up super polite. And she would say, you know, and you would just lie. Just go, it's coming great. But then when you're agent would call then the full fear would come through and just go oh mate i'm in huge trouble i'm gonna have to fake my death uh, <laughs> which is I a crime hear, novel all in itself right yeah i could hear i could go to south america i could speak a little spanish i bet you <laughs> we can move the whole family they'll never find us uh, you know so you know, the, the, at all <laughs> yeah Eventually, I suppose the fear will kick in and, uh, you know, and you'll, you'll think of something, but um, maybe that's what you need. Maybe you need um, the fear to, to get bigger and bigger and the voices in your head to get louder and louder. To and then dig it out of you. Yeah, because yeah. it was there, you know, that idea was there with you for years. Yeah, I guess it was. Well, you're right, actually was. It was there for about three years yeah. and, and I had never articulated it as an idea for a Very book at all. Yeah. It took someone else to say, Dig it out of you, yeah. about? That's, that's a book. And <laughs> it was. And a sigh of relief all around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I loved the island. I loved how it was set, you know, in Melbourne. I, I loved the family unto themselves. I, I really, I know they weren't really a cult, but I'm really interested in those people who were yeah. tight knit and don't let the outside world in. Like that fascinates me as well. And it was really, I was actually, it was a very complicated needle to thread that because I thought I don't want to be the ugly um, European or the ugly American coming here and then saying, oh, you know, this is what rural Australia was like. So I totally <laughs> cheated. And I don't know if you remember, but near the end of the book, we find out that Ma is a 10-pound palm from Belfast. Yes, I do remember uh, that. And I, I totally cheated. And then I thought, well, now no one can critique me because I'm from Belfast. So it's an interior <laughs> critique of my own culture. It's not cultural imperialism. It's, it's, and that's such a cop-out. It's such a dirty cheat. But, um, you know, I thought, oh, my God, McKinty, um, you got away with it. Uh, so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just got to cheat. <laughs> so many hot writing tips for you, yeah. from you. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's been such a joy, um, you know, watching your career rise and rise and then speaking to you about, you know, these amazing books that you've written. So I think you add so much to this genre. So thank you so much for your time in talking to me. I think we had just such a great chat about all things. So thank you. Yeah, and thank God you cut the 15 minutes where we talked about weather um, before, before the podcast because I would have had them turning off in droves. It was interesting. Uh, it was New York weather. Anything anything about New York is interesting. <laughs> well, I, well, maybe that can be the director's cut. Of the <laughs> <laughs> Cut that in at the end. Put it hey, at the thank end. Thank you so much for having me. That was a lovely chat. Thank you.